Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. My biggest takeaway is the whole world shouldn't be watching documentaries together at the same time, whether that's Tiger King or The Last Dance, because do- fucking documentaries aren't meant to immediately be, like, argued about. <laughs> it's just not what they're for. And, like, most of the time, and this is the other thing, if you're someone like me who watches and has watched literally hundreds of documentaries in their life, like, I, that's one of my favorite genres of uh, film uh, including Hoop Dreams when I was a young child, and then that became my um, my AOL or whatever, my handle. Really? Hoop Dreams 13. Yeah, Hoop Dreams really? 13. Yeah, man. I, I, that was your aim handle? That was my aim handle. I fucking loved Hoop how Dreams. Did that, how did that work with the way messages? How did that work? Uh, I mean, look, who, everyone had stupid fucking handles when they were kids. I just think Hoop Dreams 13 was, you know, it was so impressionable that it, that time frame, I mean, that was uh, in 1993, I believe, right? Or 90, 93, 94, that time frame, whatever the, whatever the classic year is. I think it's 94, um, where it was like Pulp Diction and Shawshank Redemption and um, Forrest Gump all the same year with uh, Hoop Dreams winning Best Documentary, right? Just a ton of killer films. Right, and, okay. And I remember Hoop Dreams just being like so impressionable. And at that time, you know, I was that was my sport. Played at hoops was like very it's, involved. It's not your sport now. High school, et cetera. It's not your sport now. I mean, I guess no sport is your is our sports now in that sense. I would say it's the sport I cover now, insofar as I have a podcast about it and yeah. follow it most intently. But the other part is, it's not the sport that I followed for my own pursuits. I ended up being tennis of all fucking things. So yeah. Oh well. Anyway, welcome back to episode two of uh, the Limited Upside podcast. Now on iTunes. That's right. We're official again. We're official again. New feed. New feed. I'm Mike. That's Ben. New feed. So drop a new review. Drop a new rating. Uh, subscribe there. We The old episodes are kind of dead on some dead feed. So, But you can get us on iTunes now and all your other favorite podcast players. We're back officially. So find us at Limited Upside on iTunes. Um, ben, Let's talk about The Last Dance, which ended on Sunday, as every other podcast is doing. Um, but it's also the thing that everybody was watching, um, the Michael Jordan ESPN documentary, which concluded parts 9 and 10 on Sunday. Do you like the documentary? What did you think of it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I liked it. I thought it was super entertaining to watch highlights of, of basketball again, you know, and, and like really digest – uh, an era and potentially one of the people who I think has the most indelible impact on the way we think about basketball, but that's so few people over a certain age now, like just by simple time, there's a whole generation of people literally playing in the NBA who have no actual memories of watching Michael Jordan play, right? It's wild that that was 22 years ago. It is. And how many players in the league are under 22 or in, or 27, 28 years old who right. you know, they don't have 
firm memories. It's like most of the NBA did not grow up on him, which is which is why I think it's having such a profound reverb and like discussion is so so hot on it because a lot of people it's not that it's reigniting the way they think about it it's setting it and that's where the idea that it's a heavily edited you know michael jordan uh, approved version of a documentary (laughs) is kind of where the argument should be yeah i uh it certainly wasn't it's certainly not the most objective historical text um (laughs) i'd say like i think once i once i kind of realized that and just sort of took it for what it was i mean it's really more of an advertorial than a documentary I would oh, say, don't you well think? Said. I mean, you 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 said you, before you're a big documentary person. You watch a lot of these. I don't watch as many as you do. And you were saying that you hated how this was sort of being reacted to in real time because that's not how documentaries work. What did you mean by that? Sure. Yeah. So, well, two things. One, most of the time, a documentary, specifically docu series, where it's not like a beautifully shot seven, eight years type thing that has culminated into 60 perfect minutes of, you know, following a place or, you know, the uh, the dolphins in uh, in Japan or like some kind of really important piece that actually changes perception right. on like humanitarian crisis. But like a docuseries, maybe like uh, Making a Murder uh, or any of the podcasts that do really well for true crime. Yeah. Um, it, it, the whole point is it's someone's perspective. It's their research. It's more of like uh, uh, an armchair has historian's perspective after having read a lot of other historians books and then saying this is what I think Um, because ultimately like one thing about this Jordan documentary which stands out is we don't we don't know what was edited from the other people's interviews Jordan I'm 100% sure did a million takes on his but I don't know how much of what Scotty said I think Horace Grant's been pretty public about he said a lot more that wasn't on there yeah Ron Harper was in the documentary for like one second talking about (laughs) the Cavaliers yeah and uh, by the way the other thing that I found really strange was that um Jordan's kids were barely in it just to talk about Utah his ex-wife wasn't in it you know don't you think those are important people in his life? If, I thought the excuse that Jason Hired gave, which was like we didn't want to make too much of a Michael Jordan documentary, was just like, what? What are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah. 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 The Making a Murder comparison is interesting because doesn't Making a Murder also get criticized for being too much of a heavily slanted point of view as well, like omitting key yeah, facts? That's exactly right. And that's the same thing. And look, I'm not going to – we're not going to get into serial right now about Adnan or any of that stuff. But unfortunately, one aspect of this is these are producers and directors who are storytellers and creatives doing this, right? And so intrinsically, they get involved with the character. And I'm not saying this is what's happening in the Jordan doc, but in Making a Murderer or in Serial as just high-profile versions of, like, actual interaction, knowing and working with and, like, finding a way to kind of internalize someone else's pain. You, you can't help but have a perspective. And if that perspective is sympathetic and that's the way you're telling a story, that's what, the way it's going to look. And in Jordan's case here, it's kind of the opposite. It's like, he knows what the perception of him is and has been for 30, 40 years or whatever now. Like, it, he, he's this guy who wins at all costs and, like, all the things that we know. He picked the ways that he could reinforce that, not tell oh, yeah. the stories that aren't that. And that's, well, of course, that's, he, he had he had control over the that's what I'm saying. That's you what I'm know, that's, that's what's a little different than most documentaries is that Jordan they, they had to approve the release of this footage. Um you know, that's obvious. The other thing that's weird is interesting about this documentary that compared to others is that I think for most documentaries, you know, the the whole thing is you learn something new about the story. You learn something new. You learn something about someone that hasn't been told. 
Whereas I think it, what's so weird about what's so interesting about this documentary, and I don't know how I feel about it, is that there wasn't very much. I expected a lot more stuff that I didn't know, and maybe I'm just like more up on Jordan history, but I don't think there was a whole lot in there that was new. You know, there were certainly different well, perspectives. Yeah, you know, the average person, right? I guess, I mean, but, you know, I, I don't think, like, there was much – I mean, even, like, I think the best parts of the series in some ways were just sort of the montages of highlights that you could find anywhere. That's true. That's you know, true. like, there was, like, a, I guess there was the whole thing with the, the pizza game, which, by the way, I think has been debunked before with um, the flu game and the pizza game. and uh, I think that was – that came out a few years ago, but I guess there's more detail. There's no fucking way – that five Utah people poisoned his pizza. Like, that's just, that, there's no way that's true. But let's set that aside. That was, I guess, a little new. That was a theme, though, right? Is that these stories, uh, the, the only things we, that were, and again, to your point, that weren't necessarily new, you could find them, but that being told by the characters that were part of it, at least made it interesting, is that basically the theme is all the stories that Michael had, all the things like, he said this, and so I put up 50 on him, or like that dude on the bullets or whatever who had the a Bradford good game Smith, and, and yeah. Bulls, yeah, and Bulls still won, and the next night Jordan had to go like end the guy's career, and it's like, no, he didn't really say that. It's like, so basically, you're kind of a sociopath, and you need like that reason to hate people, and you give yourself one, and I understand that. And then, then they're not. It's not real though. They're, like, they're all made up stories. Yeah. Well, like, there's also the Byron Russell. The oh, he talked trash to me when I was talking to Carl and John. Which, like, you call into question all this. I mean, if the goal of the documentary was to reveal how crazy Michael Jordan was, I think then it certainly succeeded. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that guy's crazy. nuts. Echo winner. Yeah, he's nuts. I think, and I think that he that is just so obvious. I mean, if you didn't, if you thought that like I'm not the average Jordan viewer, I mean, what new stuff did you learn from this documentary? I mean, it was to me, it was like sort of a nice fresh coat of paint over stuff that was already out there, which has its own value. But I think, I guess maybe I was because maybe it's because the footage of the '98 season was sold so much as part of this. Thing. Maybe it was because it was 10 parts. Maybe it was because there was no live sports. And I keep asking myself, like, if there were actual sports on how much would I be into this documentary? Would it still be appointment viewing? Well, um, what do you think? Would it? Would it? I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to look away from Michael Jordan stuff. Like, he has just this ability to capture your imagination. I mean, but I certainly, I certainly would have... I feel like I would have had to watch to feel like I had to keep up, whereas now I think I was watching because I needed a sports fix. Um, but what did you? What new stuff did you learn then? I mean, if if to me it wasn't very much new information, what what did you find that was like really new to you? No, I'm, I'm not gonna. Like I mentioned before, I think reinforcement is the better word. Like I'm 34 years old, right? So like, or almost 34. So like, I, I do remember the 1998 season like pretty well. I was like. 12 years mm-hmm. old yeah i was a huge sports fan at that point you know i had already been watching a sixers team that won like 30 percent of their games for a decade right so probably like, less actually what's up less right way less well yeah in fact, this was iverson's rookie year <laughs> yeah and like the early 90s they were still decent like literally 1990 and then they got really yeah you're right they okay. got really bad for a while. okay anyhow those uh, we could we could talk about the sean bradley years and all that stuff the sharon Wright year Sharon Wright, yeah, Clemson's <laughs> finest. Sure, we, sure we picked him over some really good players, just like Larry Hughes, which is maybe the worst pick of all of them. Anyhow, we're not going to do this. We're not. We're starting the podcast over, and with that, I'm not going to lament uh, and get into these. Okay. So you, so you, 
so the 98 stuff was like, you would obviously live that. Yeah, the early stuff. So were you not disappointed that, that there wasn't a, that more like kind of, I mean, I thought the stuff that I thought was really good was like the quarter scene with the security guards. Like that's like behind the scenes footage. I love that. Some of the, I mean, even some of the practice Scott Burrell stuff was like, it was, I expected more, but that was kind of nice behind the scenes stuff. I mean, those were the things I really, I was there for. And the rest of the retelling, I just, maybe it's, I know too much. And it was, yeah, so I think it's the opposite for most people. I think, I think most people needed to have some perspective when it comes to the way the game is played, the way Jordan played, the difference just overall. And in, in, uh, Jordan merged eras of basketball that are undeniable, right? Like mm-hmm. the 80s and into the into the late 90s, despite the fact that goofy big men like Rick Smith and and Ewing were still foils of Jordans, and and obviously in the when he was playing in the Eastern Conference in the late '80s, it was a lot of big guys trying to kill him too. But point is, like, um, the point is, like, it's it's that he he really was like a very seminal figure in just the transition of sports into pop culture and entertainment and all the things that can only happen one time. Like, you don't get to have barriers broken and trendsetters that go and get their own line of a brand that's just starting out like Nike as well. Like, there were so many perfect synergies, and so I think a lot of people needed to be reminded of of the cultural components around it the you know the apex meetings of things like a generational athlete and a generational brand i think then you have to also factor in the game was super different and that he ultimately kind of uh what's the best way to describe it had the perfect brand of basketball certainly in, in the, the second three peat i would say in the second three peat for sure to dominate and they did you saw the scores of all the games and not to beat a dead horse but like these were some defensive juggernauts. Ridiculous. I think the I think the Jazz series like they average like seventy five possessions a game or something, which is that's like basically three quarters the of a game today. So there's a full twenty five percent of the game we're playing in addition to that, basically if that's the standard. I mean that's just crazy. Uh, I think that that was the game six. Um, Can I ask you a question, Mike? Because one thing that I got out of this was the different types of teams that they had to, to beat the first three-peat and the second three-peat. And you did a, you did a piece for, was it 538, like, last week? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Everyone should go yeah. check that out. Mike's in 538 now. La-di-da. Very cool. It's exciting. <laughs> um, and the point is, like, you did a you breakdown of, of the, the competition that LeBron's faced in the playoffs and who Jordan's faced. Can you tell me who you think, and we don't have to talk about LeBron, but from the first three-peat and the second three-peat of those, which was the most difficult team they faced? Not how it ended up playing out necessarily, right. who you think was the best team from the first three-peat they played against and then from the second. Because I'm very curious. Good question. I think um, from the first three-peat, I think they the best team they played against was probably the Knicks in 93. I think the best team of the group was a team they didn't play, which was the 91 Blazers. I think they were not as good in 92. Um, they kind of got lucky that the Lakers knocked them out. I am on the train that I think Phoenix was over is overrated. That 93, they had a lot of big games. I don't think they really meshed. They're certainly a very good team, but I don't think like an all-time team. Now, the second three-peat, I think they did have some really tough ones. It's I find it fascinating. I think the toughest team they played was the 97 Jazz. But I find it really interesting that Jordan – and many of the Bulls to this day say that the 98 Pacers was their toughest series, you know, because, I mean, I, I was, I've been watching a lot of that series and, you know, game five was a blowout. 
The games in Indiana won were super tight. I think all two-point victories. Game seven was obviously very tight, and Indiana had that great shot. But the Bulls were seemed to be more in control. And I that Indiana team, I think – I, I didn't think it was as good as either of the Utah teams. And I think the Utah team in 98 was weaker than the 97 team and weaker than the 96 Sonics. And I guess I just – I'm surprised that the Pacers series felt like the one that was most dangerous. Um, not to take anything away from that Pacers team. I just – that didn't seem like their toughest series. I think really the, the 97 finals, the flu game series, that was a series that could have gone either way. Like even the 98 series – they had that blowout in game three. Utah only won one game in, like, overtime. I mean, the scores are so – dude, Utah scored 54 points I know. in game three. 50. How does a team that that good do that? Like, that's the thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand, like, how a team – why why is it not the 97 series that is, like, kind of more remembered than the 98 series? Is it just because how it ended? Like, why does the 98 series seem more dangerous? Like, the Jazz – the Jazz won one game where the Bulls were dead-ass tired and it took overtime after – they, all that time off. They won one game where the Bulls didn't really care. The Bulls crushed them in one of the games. And then one despite Scottie Pippen limping around on a bad back. Like that that Jazz team in 98 was not nearly – I continue to believe was just not nearly as good as an I-7 team. It's funny, man. Like in 97 too, Malone had a heck of a series. Um it's just crazy to me still. So that, those scores were Jazz won game one. Maybe that's one of the reasons why. 98, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 98, I'm sorry, yeah. They, they and the, won, Bulls, um, the Bulls were worse, obviously. Like, that's a, that was a worse Bulls team for all the reasons that the documentary played out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating, dude. Like, Jordan definitely had, I mean, except for game four in 1990, uh, the 97 finals when the Bulls scored 73 points. I'm just trying to envision a world. I hate doing this, but trying to envision a world where, like, uh, you know, LeBron has, like, some shit game and his team scores 73 points. And, and in my head I'm thinking, well, I guess they did get kind of smoked by the Golden State. But I, Also the, almost, the, the Dallas series. I don't remember how many yeah, points. Yeah, that whole thing. Um, True. You know? Oh, they, that, the Dallas series was – to me, that's probably the lowest point of. I think certainly. Yeah, LeBron's career. I mean, Dallas as a team was probably the weakest of any of the finals teams that they played. Although, Dallas backers will say that um, they were probably stronger than their point differential indicated because they had missed Dirk for a while in the in the season. But I mean, if you look at every single team that all those team those two played in the finals, I think Dallas is pretty clearly the weakest of the. So there's six plus the weakest of the 15 opponents that the two of them have faced. That's interesting. You think you think that too? Because I mean, who was who was weaker? Yeah, I'm just trying to think. I mean, uh, I, I'm like I'm I'm not as high on the Sonics. I guess after having watched this, it kind of looked like that was one thing I needed to remember, which was really it was like Gary Payton and a, and a Kemp who had lost some some of his explosiveness by that point. Kemp had an insane finals that year. Seattle won 64 yeah. games and had like yeah. – actually, Seattle yeah. by point differential was the second best team that the Bulls faced. I think the Maybe best I'm one was the Jazz. There. I, but again, you're using point differential and stuff. I'm, I'm kind of more trying to rethink this from my perspective now. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Who do you think was the best team that both – I mean, outside of the Warriors teams, I think, who was the next best team that either of them faced? Outside of the Warriors teams? Because I think it's fair – I mean, the, the obvious conclusion was that all the Warriors teams were better than any team that Jordan faced. Uh, hmm. 
I mean, like, I would say probably the Jazz in 97, and then maybe San Antonio the year that LeBron snuck in in 2007, and then... Lost, and lost to. Yeah, and then I think every other team after that are the, the five Jordan beat, and then you get to the other LeBron teams. Yeah. Maybe, I guess I guess there are the 2014 Spurs also, and 2013. I don't think the 2013 team was as strong as 2014. Um the 2014 Spurs. But, yeah, I mean, uh, you look at it, I, mean, I guess the Lakers in 91 were kind of weak and they had a lot of injuries. I've said my piece about the Suns and the Jazz. I think Seattle was terrific and really good that year and would have won any other year. I think Portland, though being not as good as they were in 91, was still a pretty formidable opponent. Um, the real thing, though, is that, like, Jordan had tougher East paths. I mean, that's the thing that really right, separated. Right. That's the biggest difference, for sure. Right. For sure. I mean, that's why I just think that it's interesting that Indiana is held up as this, by the, by them, as this team that, like, really pushed into the brink. Is it just because of that Game 7? They go to the finals two years later? Or... They do, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's clearly a sustained, I mean, we remember them being tough. Like, they kind of got bossed by the Lakers, but that series was, I remember, uh, close-ish. Kobe got hurt, and that's why they won Game 3. Although Game 4 was really competitive. And that also was a weaker Pacers team. I think the 98 team was better. For sure. And I think, I think, well, two things. I think you wrote about Reggie being ahead of his time and being someone who'd fit in great in today's game. And, like, yeah, Reggie, Reggie was an interesting foil. I think someone who Jordan, although he probably wouldn't admit, had respect for, had respect for. You know what I mean? Uh, at least that's the way it came across. Jordan, did you read that? Did you ever see that quote about what Jordan said about Reggie, like going against him as like playing against a woman? Very non-PC quote. No, but that's, <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's the type of thing, again. Because he flops all the time and all that. Add, add it to the list of shit that Jordan could get away with. Another super important lens. People were like, oh, man, a 10-part documentary um, um, on Jordan, like, this is the most amazing thing. And I'm over here, like, ringing a cowbell, being like, LeBron James has been on television since he was 17 years old. His entire life is a documentary, <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah, he's basically, it's at the Truman Show with LeBron, and it's he's still exceeded, <laughs> he still exceeded expectations. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. From a society, you can argue that Jordan also was Truman Show by the end. But what's interesting, what I think is, and this is this, I don't know if you want to talk about this this discussion, but like the one other question I keep asking myself through this is that obviously Jordan as an athlete was super entertaining and amazing. Was Jordan is Jordan as like kind of a figure as a person actually that interesting? It was a question I kept asking myself as I'm watching this, you know, because I think that the Jordan that he that was put out there by this documentary. I don't think that Jordan is that interesting a figure. I think he's crazy, incredible winner, an incredible athlete. And that's what he wants to be known by. But then you dig deeper into sort of the other stuff going on in Jordan's life, the way that his post playing career has played out for, especially the fact the dark stuff with that they touched on with like the gambling and the retirement and all that. There is something I think that then that makes Jordan more interesting, but that's not really the Jordan that the documentary portrayed, except for I think that one episode where it ends with him crying, where I think it unintentionally and this I want to David Roth who used to work for SB Nation now was doing recast for New York Mag was really good about this. It kind of unintentionally revealed the conflict of Jordan the competitor in a way that I'm not sure Jordan himself wanted it to come out, but other than that, like we the we got a very like. You talking about the first title after his father had died? 
Yeah, I'm talking about. I'm actually talking about the episode where where it's like why he's mean to his teammates. Right, right, right. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Where he he cries at the end and like kind of talking about his philosophy and you know. Oh, because I care so much, or whatever it was. Yeah, you're like. Yeah, oh, I mean, I think I think that that was revealing in a way that Jordan didn't intend it to be revealing. Like at face value, that was pretty boring, but I think it actually reveals something interesting. So I don't know what you think. Like, do you think Michael Jordan the person is interesting? Uh, that is a great question, man. Um, I, I do, I do, but I think the point is he doesn't want to show the parts that make him yeah, maybe so exactly. interesting. Yeah. And that type of guarded nature, that, that mysterious side of Jordan, I think one again is a, a sign of the times that he lived in, that you could keep yourself and your life more private. Um, it's really, really hard to be. I think even like uh, trying to think of a good person, Damian Lillard. Right? I would say like Kawhi right. Leonard is the comparison. I guess, but like because you don't know anything about him, Kawhi, Kawhi, who I think is probably hilarious if you got to hang out with him. Like you Tim Duncan as well is another example. Totally, those are the funniest people. Like those are the ones who I would prefer to hang out with and just sit around and and you know maybe get high and talk sports or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The point is, I'd rather hang out with him, but I'm saying, a guy who's like a, a celebrity in so far as, people know who Damon Lillard is. He's a, yes. one of the okay. top players in the NBA, but he's far from Michael Jordan. And he needs to watch everything he says. You know, he needs to be very careful. Not saying Damian Lillard, but someone like in that ilk of uh, level of, of fame. I see what you're saying, yeah. Yes, Jordan's part of the mysterious component is that he, he could actually do the things that maybe he wanted to do, his vices, and get away with it. And a lot of it's like the alcoholic uh, analogy and, you know. We're not saying Jordan's an alcoholic, just the same psychology of an alcoholic. Yes, the psychology of like, look, well, look, I'm still winning, so then it's okay. You know, it's the whole point is like, I'm still doing well at work. My my friends still like me. It's like, that's great. But that's What did he say? I can quit gambling at any time? He did. He did. He did say something like that? He's literally an addict. I mean, he's addicted to gambling. Clearly addicted to gambling. Oh no, addicted to competition, as Michael himself says, not yes. gambling. It's competition. competition. I have a competition problem. That's right. Yeah, and look, I, I'm someone who had to sit out in third grade for two months of gym, of gym class, for being over competitive. That's mm-hmm. the type of fucking school that I I, I went to at Swarthmore College, uh, Swarthmore uh, Rutledge School in, in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania. All right. Very much like I was just too too much in dodgeball and like too much of a com- competitive kid. And that was really good for organized sports and sports that I play, but not for school's gym class, apparently. <laughs> here's, well, here's what's funny about it is that fast forward and the, the gym teacher who uh, ended up taking a job is running Outward Bound, this really cool organization, is my mother-in-law. And at Ooh. the time uh, was not my mother-in-law, obviously. I was in third grade. And that is uh, the type of life, um, like, just coming into circles that uh, that occurred to me. So the person who suspend, who kicked me out of gym class is my mother-in-law who who I love dearly and she's fantastic. Yeah. Is this crazy. like um is this like uh Seth Curry marrying Doc Rivers' daughter or one of the Currys? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is Seth. Um no, I, I don't even I that, that is a different type of <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um but the the Jordan competitive problem, I mean I think it's interesting insofar as you look at what the 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 Jordan that he wants to portray versus what the Jordan that he is. This is this like kind of crazy mass media star that like kind of seems to be on the surface this like incredibly outgoing, incredibly personable, 
always in the spotlight person. Whereas I think deep down what it shows is that he's kind of not that he's the opposite of that. And those two things are always in conflict with each other. And you, you really see it in this documentary. It's like, there's, I, the way I look at it is there's Michael and then there's Jordan, or I think the way it's been described is Mike Jordan and Michael Jordan. And, you know, they're, they're always fighting each other. I find that to be interesting where it's like this incredible drive and slight can, he can never turn it off. And he has to, but I mean, if you really think about what made him cry, it's interesting what made, maybe other things made him cry and they just didn't show him. But if you think about the one thing that made him emotional in all of these interviews, it's how he treat, how he like talked about his winning his all at all cost mentality. There wasn't, you know, it's interesting. He didn't cry about his father in the documentary. I'm sure maybe he's done a lot of that crying behind this after the fact. He didn't get emotional about really anything else. But the one thing he gets emotional about, most emotional about, is this sort of. I have to be a tyrant. I, I had to be a tyrant to win because that's what mattered. I think that reveals a lot without revealing a lot. No, I think that's well said, and I agree. It's um. So I find that element of his interesting. Also, when you think consider that he's commissioning his own ten part documentary, and it's pretty entertaining, but also pretty surface level. You know, there's a you contrast that to LeBron, who I just feel like loves is such an extrovert extroverted personality he just sort of gets so much energy out of around people you think about him as a teammate it's always doing stuff in the group it's always that sort of thing he's out imagine jordan getting everyone on the on the plane like yo yo everyone get over here we're gonna take a team picture (laughs) yo we're gonna wear custom suits to this game (laughs) can you imagine it's 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 more like 10 guys but where's mike and, and, and also, like, can you imagine? Can you imagine Le- Jordan giving, like, running a whole program that's like a commencement high school commencement address with Obama? Right. Like, can you imagine? I, I, there's something about I think he gets all his energy out of kind of being in the public eye. It, like, and for Jordan, I think it's the complete opposite. Like, he looked like he was. It, he just gets. It, it makes him weary. Like, he seems like a secret closet introvert, and that is interesting when you consider how he's marketed himself. Because he's Michael Jordan, and he can, like the back of his head is more well known than the front of right. most people. I mean, I just I thought it was. I mean, the most interesting parts of the documentary, I think, were probably where you talk, where you see like the price of fame take its toll on him. And I kept thinking to, I, I could imagine him thinking to himself, like, I created this, like this is my fault, but this is how it has to be. This is good, but I've, I'm trapped inside this prison that. I created and nobody's going to have sympathy on me and that that is difficult to deal with um and you know again I could see him feeling that way like he's just thinking to himself like man I wish I could just go gamble all the time and just be away from all this he's like what if what if I play basketball this is his whole point this is why he wouldn't endorse anybody you know with with the the race in North Carolina yeah which which to me is inexcusable still I just I never I never the way I look at it is, I think it was probably you could argue at the time as saying like, you know, there was more for him to lose there than there is now. You can't apply today's standards. The issue I think is that that's sort of still how he tends to operate. That's the point, right? I mean, that's it's not point. really, you know, this is not now he's secure. You would think that he would, but I just think he's not that. 
person. Like he's just no, and Jordan's whole thing is look, I'm a basketball player. That's what I love to yeah. do. That's what I'm best at. And if the yield of that is the Jordan brand and Space Jam and you know billion dollars or whatever, uh, and and being the most like well known person living like alive on the in the planet um, or on the planet, um, then he's like, well, then great. But that's not still. I don't. You know, it's almost like I don't, he doesn't want to take the responsibility that comes with the credit to that, which is to say that like the responsibility there is. And even if you don't care and, and if you don't – it doesn't matter to you that you still have the power and not and by not using said power for good, you know, you're bucking the trend of a lot of the other most influential athletes that have ever played. And inf- being influential and being great are totally different things and one lasts a lot longer influence I think than the other. Well, what's interesting – but when I mean, you say that, but I mean we're all geeking out over a – 10 part documentary about a season that no, happened 22 dude. years ago. So, I mean, no doubt, man. It, like, surely he's has staying power that, you know. I'm not talking about that. It's different. I mean, like, the influence is like the fact that, like, Jordan could have the path he has because guys like Bill Russell took took shit not for granted. Yeah. You know Although you could argue that LeBron and those, the people today have the financial security because of the path Jordan took. I mean, you could sure. apply the same logic. I, I judge him less for what he's done in the past and more, I think for what maybe how he acts now, I think. I mean, I also think it's interesting that, you know, you, you read about his background. I mean, there's a great Roy Thompson story up right now about his background growing up in, you know, rural North Carolina, in a world, in an era where it's a very, I don't want to, I want to tread carefully here because I don't know the psychology well at all. I'm just trying to, basing it off what I read, but just sort of Southern African American value of you have to work twice as hard to earn your spot, um, which is very different than I think the more cosmopolitan urban um, side of, sort of the value that some of the players today have grown up on. Um, and it sort of shapes his thinking a lot. For him, it really is everything can be solved by just doing working harder than everybody else, by caring more, by being more ruthless um, in a way that I think is not how people – I think that's very different than I think how LeBron approaches this sort of stuff, how great players today approach this sort of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's resulted in a life where Jordan is rich and famous and – has a lot of myth around him and whether by design or by whatever there, he's only beloved on a surface level. Um, I think it's by design clearly that he doesn't want people to really know him. Only the people who really know him. And then you're very loyal. Look, he means a lot to up to certain, to certain people, man, like for sure. There's a whole sect of NBA fans, people from Chicago, which is no small amount of people that he means a lot more than just surface level. Like a lot of people gained, I think a lot of, pride for the just the way things work in sports but you gain a lot of pride and almost self-value if you're a big sports fan when your team wins there's no doubt about it you like to puff out your chest I, I mean I'm sure that you were like on a personal level pretty pretty stoked when like the mystics won oh yeah of course yeah yeah exactly right yes yeah, I was wearing the I was wearing the championship yes. shirt yesterday Correct. That's what I'm saying, man. And, and like, that's the most, is that the most recent DC championship? I guess for ca- the Capitals right before that. But the point yeah. is, yeah. You know, you're not a hockey guy as much, but I'm sure that was cool. And the Nationals won. DC's on quite a run, aren't they? Yeah, I didn't care as much about those two because I've stopped following them. But I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I guess the, the way I would then, the best way to end this is that I think Jordan's conflict is interesting, but Jordan himself is not interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I, that's I, sort I of where I. 
I got it. And and, by, and to be clear, like I'm not talking about him as an athlete. I'm talking about sort of the stuff like like Kawhi Leonard right now is not that interesting a person because we don't know much about him. Yeah. Um, and what we know is fairly mundane and boring. He's a great, interesting basketball player. Right. Okay. I understand how you're qualifying this. Right. Yeah. And I think, whereas I think what like Kobe Bryant, maybe this, I'm saying this only because of what just happened to the tragedy and it's fresh in my head. I think Kobe Bryant is much more interesting a person, a character than Michael Jordan is outside of. Absolutely. I, I think his background is more interesting and his of course. psychology. I mean, look, Jordan, Grew up in a much again. You said place and time than Kobe. Kobe grew up, you know, essentially living in Italy and then Lower Marion, Pennsylvania. So and the son of a of a ball player, son of a professional basketball player who literally played for you know or from the city of Philadelphia. Like he mm-hmm. was a, a, a bit of a legend in what he played LaSalle or yeah. And then you see obviously how his post playing career has went so differently than Jordan's. Right, he was already winning awards, you know, outside of basketball. But the point is, like, Kobe's just a uh, much more, I don't. I mean, look, we could just call it like it is, but like he's he's just, Kobe's one of the smartest, most intellectual people to ever play in the league, and not only that, but he expressed that in the interest that he showed after he played. Yeah, they're similar in that they both sort of have a control over their brand, and it sort of hides some of the darker stuff. Yeah, Nike helps. Nike helps with both of those things. Yeah, yeah, but I, I think I think deep down there's much more to Kobe than there is to Jordan. The only thing I find really interesting about Jordan is just like why is he, why is he so closed off? Why does he why does he keep everybody at arm's length? Oh, this was a good opportunity. He had ten hours to do it, and uh... but that's the thing though. In the end, he kept us all at arm's length. What did we learn about him that was really groundbreaking? Maybe that's the point. That is the point, exactly. He's never going to learn. We're never going to. People to know. And I think I think this, like, for, for, for Jordan's goal of being, like, I think there's a quote he gave to Wright Thompson that I think I texted you before. He said, my biggest lesson about people came from my father. You could talk to anybody. You could get along with anybody, but he never let people into his life. He never let people see his thoughts. So, basically, he's very good at, like, kind of putting on a front. And being public, but you don't really know him. I actually relate to that quite a bit. Like I think, and I think that's how Jordan runs operates too. I think about this documentary. I've learned a lot on the surface about Jordan, but I have not learned much about how he actually thinks. And I think that's by design. That's how he wants it. And maybe, I mean, look, it's his right. He can do whatever he wants. I think. Um, I just think it's. Maybe I was kind of hoping for a little more with um, of a revelation, and I, it's my fault for being a little getting my expectations a little too high with this. I certainly was entertained, but I was also thinking at the beginning it would be like actually groundbreaking information coming out of it, and that really didn't happen as much as I had hoped. And I don't, and I guess now I look back and I think like, how? Why would I have expected that? Someone said the only two women in the show were Carmen Electra and Jordan's mom. Outside, yeah. outside of like the reporters that we're talking to, and I and the, I mean, yeah, that that is glaring. I think it's it's glaring that his wife wasn't in, his ex wife was not a part of it. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't sound like based on the interview they even really tried. I mean, I think it'd be one thing if they like they tried to get Carl Malone and he didn't want to talk. Yeah. That's one thing. Weirdly, they didn't get try to get Clyde Drexler after that whole. Oh, which, by the way, I like when I learned that it made me like Carl Malone for the first time a little bit. What learned what that he didn't talk? 
Yeah, he that he declined to be a part of it. Yeah, he didn't want to talk. I thought John Stockton had declined to be a part of it, but then he's the one, the main voice. I was confused by that. Yeah, and Stockton's also like Stockton. Both those guys play with Jordan on the Dream Team and stuff. There were parts that they could have been a you know part of the conversation without it being about the Jazz. But ultimately, probably reliving those you know two finals are probably things that they don't want to do, so that Jordan can brag about something that they probably think about every day. That's that's the way they looked at it, I guess. But um, it was interesting who they decided to interview and to not interview. Like Justin Timberlake got interviewed for no reason. Right. That was weird. I wish I wish they had a they had interviewed Carl Malone and he was sitting in like some some really rural looking like um, <laughs> like a, almost like a beaten down shack in Louisiana and he's just got a shotgun he's got his camo MAGA hat on and he and he's just like come on Mike still down here waiting for you he would be doing that just like she's basically doing like a WWE shoot what do you think Carl Malone is doing right now hunting probably. Hunting. Yeah. I, I, I take it back. There was one thing I had forgotten that was kind of new. Is I had totally forgotten about Dennis Rodman going off in the middle of the finals to do the the Hulk Hogan things. Like, I had forgotten about that. That's the other thing, too. Like, this was, I guess, broadcasted. This had this inherent tension, I think, between being a Bulls documentary and a Jordan documentary that I think was really difficult to reconcile in the time frame that they had. Right? Was this about the Bulls or is this about Jordan? They picked and cho- chose where it was convenient to be about one or the other, and I thought, I mean, I understand why it was a challenge. Um, I mean, it's weird to say like we need more. The, the ten hours wasn't nearly enough. If you're going to try to tell the story of Michael Jordan's life and the story of the Bulls, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was int- it was odd that Steve Kerr got the flashback, but Tony Kukoc didn't. It was odd that you didn't really hear much from Ron Harper. I thought if like this was a Bulls documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it was strange that Krauss got shit on without without being alive to defend himself. That's the thing, and there's they they didn't get any good interview from Krauss at the time. Like, come on, like they definitely had talked to him. So I'm, I'm sure Michael kept that from the conversation. Krauss died like three years ago. I don't think they could have. The doc? I mean, I mean the footage from like '98 and stuff. Man. Oh yeah, they got a they got a little bit. I think he's also been a tiny been re- bit of Kraus. They could have. I'm sure if they wanted to, being around the Bulls nonstop for a year, you would have had many opportunities to get the general manager's perspective of what was a very visible, obviously. What I understand, I think his estate, like his wife, is publishing unreleased parts of his memoir mm. um, with CSN Chicago, I believe, which is interesting to read. I also think that you know the end, the end where they're like, oh, we could have totally run it back and won it again. Like Scotty would have come back for one year. Like they all would have come back. Like no, they wouldn't have, and they wouldn't have won. Like I think the best thing now. Now look, the reason Jerry Reinsdorf did it was because he cheaped out, and that's right. that's on him, and his logic is. Very obvious, and what he's done since then sort of reveals him to be the person he is. I think he probably deserves more crap than Kraus did, but equally so. I mean, you look at that. I don't think they have any chance of winning in '99. I mean, I guess you can't ever fully count them out. Who won that year? The Spurs. That was a yeah. shortened season. There was a lockout shortened year. Also, I think Jordan like had a really bad cigar accident and like cut up his finger, if you recall, and like, he yeah. wouldn't be able to play a anyway. Cigar accident. Yeah, yeah but. I don't. I mean, do you think that a full strength team, like if they had run it back, would have would have won again ninety nine? I don't think so. So nineteen ninety nine NBA season. I just got to have a look at some of these. I know, like the the East looks the it, it looks diluted everything because the Spurs 
you know, everybody still claims they had the Asterix title and you have Miami, New York was really down as an eight seed and they made the finals and Miami and Indiana. But I just, I find it hard to believe that. I mean, you saw how hard the last title was. Why would them all being one year older and, you know, why would that be any easier? Like, I think what's the, there's a psychological concept, like everything that ends, ends badly. Otherwise it wouldn't end. Man, what a, what a year. That was, uh, that was Carl Malone's MVP season. Yeah, and they lost to Portland, that team. Isaiah Ryder lit them up in that series, and then he got traded in the offseason. Look at this. So Spurs won. Carl Malone was MVP. Your rookie of the year was Vince Carter. Your points per game leader was Allen Iverson. Your rebounds per game leader was Weber. Assists per game, Jason Kidd. Mm-hmm. It's a nice, it's a nice uh, set of uh, names for a strike-shortened, weird season in terms of, like, historical significance. Um, anyway. Yeah, that Portland team was really good, too. They were, like, 35 and 15, so. They had, but it's funny, like, they totally remade the team after losing to the Spurs. Like, they traded Ryder for Steve Smith. They traded for Scottie Pippen. Um, that was a – Arvita Sabonis, very underrated. Wish he would have come to the league sooner. That's the other interesting what-if about the 90s. I mean – there are a few. It's funny. We think like, oh, what if the could the Bulls have won eight in a row or nine in a row and won ninety nine? Like, think about all the close calls and, and breaks they did get to win what they did. The Blazers losing in ninety one when I think they would have lost that series. Sabonis never coming over until he was past his prime. I mean, can you imagine that Portland team with Sabonis in the middle? Right. right. I mean, that's crazy. Um, yep. It was interesting that the Knicks really changed their team up after uh, they took the Bulls to seven in 92. Um, that was something I think, um, you know, do you, th- you think about the magic breaking up? Mm-hmm. A magic breaking up is one of the biggest, for sure. Mm-hmm. The East is a whole lot different if Jordan has to come back. And comp- Anthony Hardaway's health matters yeah. in this whole thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, every team gets breaks. I'm not saying yep. Bulls got a ton. But, I mean, the fact that – you, you can't expect them to have won. The breaks are going to run out eventually. Like there's, I right. just think there's no way. I think what would have happened is what's similar to what happened to the Lakers at the end of Kobe's run. And that year they get just pile stomped by the Mavericks. And that really hurts mm-hmm. their legacy as a team. I think that's what would have happened to the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree, man. Um, it's interesting, dude, the, that 99 strike shortened season, I'm just going deep on it right now. The Kings scored 100 points per game, and they were, like, by far the best oh offense. Oh, God, it was the, the ugliest basketball. It, <laughs> it offers a little bit of, like, a cautionary tale to, like, if they try to jam the whole season in this year yes. in a short amount of time. I mean, that season was just they had was such horribly played games. Guys were out of shape, back-to-back-to-backs. That Bulls team averaged 81.9 points per game. That Bulls team was so bad. So bad. Might be one of the worst teams. That might be the worst team in all time, that Bulls team. Like, were they definitely – I think that they were worse in the process, Sixers. Uh, um, that's difficult to say. The process, Sixers were a, a revolving door of people. Um, so, so were the Bulls. They, it's a they lot had, of players. They had Kukoc and Harper, and can you name one other player on that team off the top of your head? Uh, from the anybody who has left? No, just anyone who was on the '99 team. Period. Can you name anyone else other than Kukoc and Harper? I feel like they had one of the Barrys. They had Brent Barry. Yes, he was their big free agent signing. He was terrible, um, and he immediately left. Um, that's it. That's all I got. Was anyone left? Was Bill Wennington left? Or uh, Wennington might have been left. I don't remember. 
Corey Benjamin was on that team, and apparently he challenged Jordan, and Jordan shut him up. Who's this? Corey Benjamin. Corey Benjamin. Corey Benjamin. I'm playing to Oregon State. I'm not seeing him on the the roster here. Corey Benjamin. Oh, Corey Benjamin. There he is. Yes, yes, yes. Corey Benjamin. Good name from the 90s, man. Shit. <laughs> I feel like he probably played for the Sixers. It's, no, he didn't. Okay. okay. He's, he's just bad enough that he could have played for us. Um, yeah. Brent Barry. I, I think, like, Cornell David, I want to say, was someone on their team. Just look at their roster. I really think it's worse. Yeah, Cornell David. It's a ton of rookies. Jeez, yeah. they were quite awful. Cornell, Cornell David played in the league for like uh, like eight years, apparently. Really? Um, for who? <laughs> I mean, played played professional basketball, let's see. No, no, some of these years are, okay. He played for, no, no, I'm sorry. He just played for a number of teams in two seasons. Oh, okay, got it. <laughs> who was, a, what was their most used starting lineup? I'm guessing it was what Harper and Brent Barry with Kukoc. Um, I mean, Jesus, who else would have been on the starting lineup? I mean, looking at their at their team, it was probably Kukoc. Uh, let's just go to minutes per game and see who played the most. Kukoc, Brent Barry, Ron Harper, Randy Brown. Oh, Randy Brown was still there. Yeah. Dickie oh, wow. Simpkins, Mark Bryant. Oh, Dickie Simpkins, Mark Bryant. Rusty Rusty LaRue <laughs> got 17 minutes a game. Yeah. <laughs> so it looks like, yeah, Randy Brown started 32 games. Dickie Simpkins started 35. Mark Bryant started 29 games. Oof. Uh, well, we're, we're rambling now. We've gone into the – we've now gone past the Jordan years and into uh, the worst Bulls team, one of the worst. I think it's the worst team of all time. Pretty terrible team. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go yeah. and say it. Uh, there you go. They finished uh, thirteen and thirty-seven, <laughs> and then seventeen and sixty-five the next year. <laughs> Weren't they worse the following year? It's, this was a rough. Well, there's a really good um, estimation video on the day, the years after the Jordan years that our friend Seth Rosenthal made. That just it's, it's really worth watching. Well, all that losing was worth it, man, because they got to pick Elton Brand, and then they traded him two years later. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. Good old Clippers. Yeah, good stuff. Um, all right, well, I think we've gone pretty far into the Bulls, and, and and now we've gone, like we said, past Jordan years. Probably a good place to, to cut off. I mean, I think so. What do you think? About an hour? Yeah, that's good. I think so. I think so. Yeah, reminder, look, subscribe, rate, review us. We have a new feed. Um, hopefully next week we'll talk about something that is a little more current as we get going. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, you know, the Last Dance was obviously something that we both spent a lot of time watching. I can't really I – mean, it, it probably comes across as we didn't like it. Um, but obviously we watched a lot of it. Um, I don't know what we're doing now. At the end of the day, I was entertained for, ten, for whatever, 10 hours on five different Sunday nights. That's yeah, good. That's good. Yeah. It was entertaining, I would say. Oh, one last thing. Who is – I asked this question on Twitter after – the documentary. I'd be curious to hear what you think. Who is like, if you had to pick one team in NBA history that is like the least interesting single season for a 10 part documentary, what team would you pick? They have to be good? No, like literally any team. Just any team? Any oh, okay. team. Uh, Remember, like, if they're really bad, that's interesting. Yeah, that's true. Oh, I mean, look. The, like, the process Sixers the process would be an interesting. 
the Frosted Sixers is going to be like maybe one of the best ten part documentaries because it's actually a lot of parts. It's already it's already a really good book by a friend of yeah, the program, Yaron Weitzman. That's right. <laughs> like, so I don't think you name them. I mean, would you like the '94 Sixers? Uh, the, po- the oh, the post Barkley trade Sixers with uh, Perry and uh, Hornacek and or not even and who else after they trade Hornacek. Yeah, Armand Gil- Armand Gilliam. Um, like the '95 Sixers. Yeah, they were horrible. Um, no, those teams are are completely um, devoid of having to have have any stories told about them. Let's see, <laughs> what would be the the? They don't need to be. They're so bad. They they don't even deserve it. I'm probably. I, I think of the good teams I can think of. Um, the '98 Spurs would be a very uninteresting team. See, I disagree. I heard that a lot. I actually would want to hear a Spurs documentary because there's so little we know about them that it would have to reveal something new. But that was like the, just to be, just started. Maybe on the Spurs as a whole, it'd be fascinating. But that that team right there was like the '99 team. You mean? Yeah, they happened. Yeah, sorry, '98, '99 shortened season, '99 championship yet, like or whatever that was. I would say maybe like the 2008 Bucks. I don't remember. I, what was that the whole mean? point is you're not supposed to remember them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. And then there's plenty of nondescript uh, Sixers teams to choose from. And I would say like how many years have um... – I was just going to pick on a random team and make fun I of them. Like make it like a, a good so, team. Well, how many years have like the you know the Lakers been a franchise? No, but how, how many how many years have the the Hornets like as a franchise been actually interesting? Like I don't know. I'm sure to their fans they've had like a number of teams that were fascinating, right? But if you're talking like a good team, like a 50 plus one team that you maybe like the 97 Hornets with like Glenn Rice, that would be pretty boring. Or like the the Dikembe Hawks. Like that would probably be not, or like Joe. I saw Joe Johnson. Although they have Josh Smith, and he would be entertaining. Yes, mm, or was. There are a lot of Washington Bullets teams over the years that would be terrible subjects for a ten part documentary. When 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 Da said like he's like so they're playing the Bullets and they were terrible. I thought that was super <laughs> funny. That year, like ninety three, like would have been a good one. Like before they traded for Chris Webber, like when they had their best player was Tom Gugliotta and they had Rex Chapman and Scott Skiles, that would be pretty good. The 2000 Wizards, say again. The pre MJ Wizards with like Mitch Richmond, that would have been a good one. Jeez, the, the disgust that Wizards fans have for some of their teams is one of my favorite parts of of Wizard fandom. It's like, uh, and, and Da is a you know a DC guy and all mm-hmm. that stuff, and he can he uh, like you know articulate. Sorry, I keep dropping my water bottle. He articulated that well. Um, which yep. is to say like it's just terrible because that's how I feel. Like I've had so many years of again Sixers fandom where like they were just terrible, but the process made things different because it was explained to us why mm. we were going to be terrible before we were terrible. That's different, I think, at least. Most people still try to hedge. Like yeah, It's like well, preseason in baseball. You know, hey, we love the staff. Got a great uh, – pens looking sharp. You know, we really like the speed on the bases. And then, like, you know, whatever the team Deliberately wins, like, terrible. Yeah, yeah, deliberately terrible. Fair enough. All right, we should wrap this uh, up. I'm yeah, curious to hear who would the worst subject be from y'all. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. this week. Yeah, man, limited upside. It's fun. Yeah.